Bruno stated that as soon as Denaro went to New York, he, Bruno, was contacted and advised. Bruno stated that Denaro was the sorriest man that ever did what he did, that is, going to the commission. Bruno stated that he, Denaro, was told by Carlo Gambino, I want you to know Angelo is with me even if he is not here. He is sitting right there just the same, just like we represent Angelo. This statement was interpreted by informant to mean that Gambino respects Bruno as an equal because Bruno too is a member of the commission. The legends of the American Mafia are woven into the fabric of American society and pop culture. We've all seen the movies or heard the stories of the men of this secret society. They're stories of family, power, wealth, respect, greed, betrayal, violence, murder, and mayhem. While the golden age of the mob may be over, the stories have become lore and the names remain as infamous as ever. You're listening to the Members Only Podcast, hosted by history buff and mob aficionado Jacob Stoops. He tells the true crime biographies of real-life mobsters and dives deep into the plots, subplots, and real facts behind Cosa Nostra, as well as popular mob films and television shows. Viewer discretion is advised. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of the Members Only Podcast. I am your host, Jacob Stoops, and I'm a mob enthusiast and historian. I'm really excited for today's episode, which will be focusing on one of the most infamous mafia figures outside of the five families of New York City, that being Angelo Bruno of Philadelphia. Angelo Bruno would rule the Philadelphia underworld for over 20 years and has the distinction of presiding over one of the most peaceful time periods in that city since the mob became active in the Philadelphia area. However, because this show is is about the mafia, we know that the wheel is always turning and Angelo Bruno, no matter how peaceful his reign might have been, fell victim to plots from within and was murdered in 1980 in one of the most infamous and enduring events in the history of Cosa Nostra in this country. But before we cover all of the machinations that went into the end of his life, we're going to talk about the beginning. In this episode, we'll cover his youth, his early career in the mob, and how he rose to power and ultimately took control over Philadelphia's Cosa Nostra family. And I'm going to make a personal prediction, because I know how much digging I had to do to find certain information, and I did a lot, uh, and because I stand behind my work, I'm going to predict, and actually I'm going to guarantee that you'll learn something new about Bruno that maybe you didn't know about him before, and you'll learn a little more about Philadelphia that maybe you didn't know before. And if you don't, good for you, uh, and you have my permission to let me have it in the comments. Uh, but if you do, please do me a favor and either subscribe if you haven't already or share the show with others who you think might be interested in my content. Uh, I'm still a small show and I could use all the help I could get to keep growing. Uh, and while it's certainly a passion project, I do put a ton of time into the research and production in order to bring you stories that are as close to accurate as I can. Not everyone is willing to go to these lengths. Anyhow, uh, I've kept you waiting long enough. Uh, let's get into the episode. Angelo Bruno, a.k.a. The Docile Don. 
Angelo Anna was born on May 21, 1910 in Villalba, a province of Caltanissetta, Sicily. It should be noted that his surname at birth was Anna Loro, but later was actually changed to Bruno. Uh, the Anna Loro family would immigrate when Angelo was just over a year old from the port of Palermo to the United States and would arrive at Ellis Island, New York on October 13, 1911 aboard the Santa Ana, according to records I was able to locate. An FBI report would notate that his birthplace of Villalba, the town the Analoros left behind, has been variously described as a collection of squat little houses with earth floors and one of the dens of the Sicilian bandits. Young Angelo's family would settle first in Trenton, New Jersey, where his father, who had immigrated about five years ahead of them, was living and working at the time. After spending roughly a decade in Trenton, the Anna clan would move to Philadelphia, first residing at 432 Fitzwater Street. Angelo's father was a man named Michele Bruno Anna and his mother was Vincenzina uh, Jenny Bruno. According to the records I found, Angelo's family was relatively small for an Italian family of the time, as he had only one sister, Josephine, who was two years his senior, and two younger brothers, Victor and Joseph. Now, I will say the, the records were a little spotty at the time, um, but I believe that to be, to be accurate. So, small family. As a quick aside regarding Angelo's citizenship, which has been known to become a thorny issue, especially at this time period, uh, for some mobsters. According to records, Angelo appears to have received his naturalization through uh, derivative citizenship when his father was naturalized as a citizen in March of 1931. However, later in life in 1945, the legitimacy of Angelo's citizenship was raised by curious immigration officials. Uh, and they would press the question as to how he could have been born in Sicily during the early part of 1910 when his mother had never been to America and his father claimed to have been in the United States continually since 1906. So I guess, I guess a pretty valid question. Uh, you know, how do they complete, uh, complete the transaction, so to speak? Uh, and Angelo would tell a group of friends that his father had secretly returned to Sicily in 1907 or 1908, but that following an encounter with the law, he had to flee back across the Atlantic in order to avoid prosecution. At some point during that time, young Angelo was supposedly conceived. Now, officially speaking, Angelo would testify that if he was to be deprived of his citizenship because of his legitimacy being called into question, he would simply apply for citizenship through his wife since she derived her citizenship through her father. However, this was not actually necessary as the Nationalization Service pretty much gave up uh, and allowed his derivative citizenship. Angelo's father was a foundry worker who opened a small grocery store at 4341 North 6th Street in Feltonville, Philadelphia. Ever the dutiful son, Angelo helped his father at the store until around 1922 when at the age of 12 he'd enter school for the first time, attending South Philadelphia High School. However, uh, similar to, to many other youths at this time, this wasn't uncommon, uh, it would appear that school just wasn't a fit for young Angelo, and after he completed just uh, two years, he dropped out. Now, I will say that some records show him attending in 1924 instead of 1922 uh, and dropping out by 1926, while other records are, you know, have a, a slightly different timeline. But the fact remains that he didn't complete high school and he dropped out and hit the streets. 
While records would show that he would continue for a time to work for his father, it wasn't long, like I said, before he would hit the streets of Philadelphia. But uh, looking at census records in 1930 and U.S. probation records and parole records, uh, they would later show that Angelo was, for official purposes, employed as a grocer's clerk up until 1935 for his father at 1813 South 9th Street uh, in Philadelphia. And then in December of 1935, Bruno would be employed again as a grocer's clerk by a man named M. Imorlino. For all intents and purposes, he'd be in the grocery business until 1940, but by that point, he had already spent over a decade making his way up in the criminal underworld. Now, in the early 1930s, Angelo would get married to his childhood sweetheart, Asanta Sue Maranca, in around either 1931 or 32. Again, the records were a little hard to come by, uh, and the happy couple would actually elope to Westchester, PA. Angelo and Sue would go on to have two children, a son, Michael, born in 1932, and a daughter, Jean, uh, born in 1941. Bruno would be characterized uh, by his friends as a person who likes anyone, uh, who takes care of his family, and who is also regarded as a good family man. It's also worth noting that with regards to his family, Bruno was known to take the approach of deliberately not involving either of his children in any of his illicit activities, uh, which uh, probably made him a little unusual at that time, as it was pretty normal, especially at that time, to make this a family business and bring your, uh, bring your children in. Jumping a little bit ahead in our story, which we'll do quite a few times, so try, so try to keep up, and I, for, uh, you know, please forgive me in advance, uh, in 1956 or 57, while still a rank-and-file member of the mob, Bruno reportedly asked to be released from the rackets, and according to several reports I saw, possibly even from the organization itself, for fear of embarrassing Jean. Uh, when Jean, his daughter, was married in 1962, Angelo is said to have sent wedding invitations. And this is a lot, actually, I'm just going to pause. This is a lot like uh, The Godfather. If, you, if you've ever read the book, there is a, uh, a, a passage where it notates, uh, as Vito is, is sitting in his office, uh, how he has sent invitations to certain important people, politicians in this case, uh, and then uh, makes the recommendation that they not show up so that people, uh, media authorities, don't make that connection. Uh, so when his daughter, uh, and going back to Angelo, when Jean is married in 1962, Angelo is said to have sent wedding invitations to his fellow commission members, Carlo Gambino and Stefano Magadino, but recommended that they not show up. So it's a bit like art imitating life or life imitating art. Uh, maybe Puzo used that as, as potentially some inspiration when he was writing. Later in his life, uh, according to reports in the 1960s, he was known to boast that Michael would not do things in an illegal manner. Uh, and again, jumping back, uh, it's around the 1920s or early 1930s that a young Angelo made the decision to change his surname from Anna Loro to Bruno in honor of his paternal grandmother's maiden name, although his friends would simply call him Ange. It's also at this time that young Angelo Bruno begins to make some connections that would loom large throughout his life and drive him towards a life of crime.
As young Angelo was coming of age during the 1920s, prohibition was in full swing across the country. I've talked about this in many episodes. Uh, the Volstead Act, as it was called, made the sale of intoxicating liquors illegal, but inadvertently caused a criminal revolution in this country due to the demand that still existed from a very thirsty public. As a result, bootlegging became an incredibly profitable and easy to enter profession, though it was dangerous as we've touched on, like I said, in many, many episodes. Though I couldn't find specific documentation, and again, that's one of the problems of trying to research so far, so far back. Sometimes documentation just straight up doesn't, doesn't exist despite the stories and the rumors that you hear. Angelo started bootlegging, that's clear. Uh, and it's clear that at some point in either the late 1920s or early 1930s, he would start to dip his toes in the water of criminality. It's around this time that Bruno is supposed to have made a monumental lifelong connection through his bootlegging activities to another young Sicilian mobster based out of New York, one Carlo Gambino. It has been alleged over the years that the pair would go into real estate together, even owning their own still together and would make a lot of money together over the years. Now, again, I'm going to I'm going to admit uh, I struggled to find proof and documentation here to make the bootlegging connection between Bruno and Gambino around this time period. And I dug, believe me, I dug. Uh, but it's a case of where there's smoke, there's probably fire, and there's enough other sources uh, that that I believe the veracity of, of this, this sort of story. Uh, now, whether it's 100% accurate or not, uh, what's clear is that the pair would appear to have established a strong bond during this time period and would become fast friends and allies for the rest of their lives. Uh, that we do know to be 100% true and accurate. Bruno also would have some familial connections to the underworld. Uh, you see, living with Bruno at the time, uh, at around this time was his cousin, uh, a man named, and you're going to recognize this name, John Simone. Uh, if that name sounds familiar, it's because it's the same John, Johnny Keys Simone, who would later become famous in his own right after being murdered by Sammy the Bull Gravano. And of course, uh, Johnny Keys had his own reputation. He wasn't just famous because he was murdered by the bull, um, because, but I would say people these days remember his name mostly in connection with that. So both Bruno and Simone were up and coming underworld figures running the streets side by side pretty much in those days. Over time, through bootlegging and other illicit activities, Angelo Bruno would continue to deepen his connections within the Philadelphia underworld and would eventually meet and form a relationship with a well-known early Philadelphia crime figure named Michael Maggio, uh, who was in fact the founder of the Maggio Cheese Corporation. And to, to Bruno, he would also be related by marriage. So that is how that connection happens through actually Bruno's wife. Now, Michael Maggio's real occupation, of course, was as a mobster and prominent member of the Philadelphia crime family, who was also a convicted murderer. And he, uh, around this time, was sentenced to five years in 1934 for the killing of his ex-wife, who was 34 at the time, and son, who was just 21 at the time. Pretty crazy story. Uh, allegedly with three small children sleeping in the next room. Uh, so it's clear this dude was as cold as ice. And as a side note, Maggio pled guilty to a double homicide and only got five years. Uh, 
again, that's just a sign of how powerful the mob was in those days and how far the governmental corruption likely went. It wasn't the last time Maggio, though, would be connected to and arrested for a murder. Anyhow, as I mentioned, Angelo Bruno was allegedly in the grocery business up until 1940, but in reality, his criminal career, for all intents and purposes, had really been launched well before that, and he would ring up his first arrest in 1928 at the age of just 18. Bruno would be arrested numerous times over the next 38 years, but would only ever receive a handful of convictions, all coming with relatively minor sentences, which is a testament to the power of the organization during his time, as well as its control over the judicial system. In order to give you really a good idea of how Bruno got started in the life, I'm going to go through some of Bruno's arrests, starting with the 1928 incident and running all the way into the 1950s. Angelo Bruno would ring up his first arrest on November 21, 1928. During this incident, an 18-year-old Bruno was arrested at Passiunk Avenue and Federal Street, where he was charged with reckless operation of his automobile, as well as collision, misuse of license tags, and damaging city property. I believe he crashed into a pole. Uh, he had apparently collided with another vehicle and knocked down a patrol box. Uh, the disposition was discharged. Now, I have no idea if this particular arrest was as a result of him possibly running from the authorities uh, while in the commission of another crime, or if it was related at all to the organization, or if it was just more of a youthful indiscretion. But either way, uh, it got his name on the scoreboard uh, of criminality, uh, so to speak. Interestingly enough, I found something else that showed up in the news in 1928, and this is, was a surprise to me, and this would be the first time I would find Bruno's actual name crop up in the local papers. It didn't crop up in the other story. Uh, it appears that an 18-year-old Angelo Bruno and the address listed in the article 4341 North 6th Street does match where his family resided at the time, may have dropped a dime on some other local hoods. According to the report, it would appear that he played a significant part of a sting operation that netted local black handers who'd been trying to shake him down. Uh, now, some may consider this uh, a bit of a rap move uh, or totally a rap move, but it didn't seem to have a noticeable effect on his rise within the underworld. But it was an odd story uh, to come across nonetheless, and I highly recommend, like, pa pause the video and read it. It's interesting. On June 30th, 1930, federal prohibition agents, and this is the first uh, tie into bootlegging, would raid a distillery in Somerset County, Pennsylvania, owned by Bruno, as well as an associate named Nick DiStefano. The distillery, operative said, was located in a one-story building on the Yonker Farm in Allentown Road, uh, and a 150-gallon still, 1,008 gallons of mash, 800 pounds of corn sugar, and 104 gallons of moonshine were seized. Now, again, to me, like, that seems like a lot, but again, those numbers don't really mean any. It seems like a big operation, but then again, I don't, I don't have much to compare to, but that does seem like a pretty substantial operation given, given those numbers. Uh, in October of that year, Bruno and DiStefano would get just four months uh, in the Cambria County Jail after being convicted of possession and manufacture of liquor. Uh, again, lots of lots of bootleggers were running into this this type of thing. It was a bit like cops and robbers. Uh, it would not be Bruno's last uh, brush with the law related to illegal alcohol. 
on, a, on April 19th, 1935, while residing at 1725 Packer Avenue, the FBI records show that Bruno was arrested and charged with violation of the Pennsylvania State Liquor Control Act, uh, and arrested with him were his brother, Victor Bruno, brother-in-law, Ralph Maranca, as well as a man named Joseph Lunio. Thirteen containers of five-gallon white liquor were confiscated, as well as a single 500-gallon skill, complete and in operation, and the authorities also destroyed 2,000 gallons of mash. So another significant operation. So it seems like he either set another one up or he had multiple going at the same time. Then again, on October 8th, 1935, Bruno was again arrested, uh, again with his brother Victor and brother-in-law Ralph Maranca for operating a still and manufacturing illegal liquor. He would plead guilty and in November of 1935 would receive a 15-month suspended sentence for this particular infraction and was put on three years probation. So again, uh, continuing to get, uh, get arrested, but no charges. On April 9, 1937, Bruno, now residing uh, at 1628 uh, Norris Street, was arrested and charged with disorderly conduct and paid uh, a $10 fine. If I had to guess, probably just a, a drunken night out with the boys. Now, fast forwarding to the 1940s, and you're going to see that, uh, again, things start to evolve uh, a little more. Uh, start to become larger scale and deeper into criminality, different things. It's not just bootlegging anymore. Uh, on October 18th, 1940, at 1905 Broad Street, Bruno was arrested and charged with setting up and maintaining an unlawful lottery, 50,000 number plays, that seems like a lot, uh, and one adding machine, which was confiscated. He was indicted and found guilty on October 28th, 1940. Now, three years later, on July 28, 1943, Bruno was again arrested and charged with setting up and maintaining an unlawful lottery, though the charge would be eventually dismissed. And again, that's common. Uh, he doesn't do any prison time, prison time really. Uh, he'd run into his next bout with the law on May 25, 1944, when he was arrested and charged, and again, this is branching out into something else, with receiving stolen goods in violation of the Witkin Firearm Act. A set of stolen silver fox furs were found in his apartment, and in the process of searching his home, the authorities found a 38 caliber gun in his bureau drawer. Uh, and he was indicted for these charges in 1944, again, but found not guilty. So uh, nothing is is sticking, uh, truly, truly uh, Teflon. <laughs> uh, and of course, as you begin to get into the 1950s, you're going to begin to see Bruno's rise. I'm going to ask, uh, again, like I said before, that you forgive me in advance as we're going to bounce back and forth on the timelines quite a bit in this episode. I'll also ask that you please bear with me as I'm just one of those people who is interested in the genealogical perspective and I take time to look at old census records and listed occupations of mobsters. Uh, I find that really fascinating. So uh, in the case of Bruno, according to the 1950 census, he listed his occupation as broker proprietor. Uh, and I always find these things funny. What exactly was he brokering? Uh, what, what was he a proprietor of? Uh, I probably don't think you could, you could admit it, uh, probably of illegal things, <laughs> but I guess maybe it was a half-truth. Anyhow, Bruno, uh, who in 1953 uh, was 43 at the time, was arrested again on March 18th of that year with his cousin, John Johnny Keyes Simone, who was actually using the alias of John Perna and charged yet again with setting up and maintaining an illegal lottery. 
This was really the first time I observed Bruno being reported in, in the news as someone of any importance within the underworld, and the Philadelphia Inquirer would later uh, would actually refer to him and his associate, fellow underworld figure Pete Casella, as chieftains of the South Philadelphia numbers mob. The trial wouldn't actually take place until October 15th of 1954, at which point Bruno and Simone, alias Perna, pled no contest, received a fine of $200, and again, three years probation. So, got off, got off light. Uh, showing that he was a fairly shrewd mobster, it was speculated that Bruno had originally planned to plead not guilty and fight the case. Uh, but as a result of a decision handed down by the Supreme Court of Pennsylvania, allowing wiretapping information to be accepted as evidence, Bruno decided to change his plea to guilty. Now, it is alleged that Bruno believed that it would actually be better to plead guilty than to accept evidence from the wiretaps, which would theoretically allow his Confederates' names to come out in open court, uh, something you want to avoid. Uh, and again, this was actually a shrewd play, even though he had to plead guilty, a shrewd play. And it was one of those things that continued to bolster uh, his reputation, but in actuality had minimal consequences you know, for him when it was said and done. Uh, it's also around this time in 1953 and 1954 that Bruno's name starts to really pick up some steam with the media as he continues to be mentioned with increasing prominence as the leader of South Philadelphia's Bruno mob, specifically during the trial of Magistrate Joseph J. Molinari. Uh, this would tend to indicate that Bruno had begun to cultivate connections with local politicians, which again was one of those things that enhanced his power. Here's an interesting line of questioning from the trial between District Attorney Richardson Dilworth, who was questioning a defense witness, one Gus A. Wilderman, uh, Molinari's attorney of 25 years. Quote, Did you ever hear of the Bruno gang in South Philadelphia? Dilworth asked. No, Wilderman replied. You have never heard of the Bruno gang? No, I never. You mean, you never heard of Angelo Bruno? Dilworth persisted. No, I never heard of him, Wilderman answered. You didn't know that Angelo Bruno is a close and intimate friend of Magistrate Molinari? Dilworth asked again. There was no answer from Wilderman. The audience leaned forward expectantly, and Lemuel B. Schofield, Molinari's trial attorney, rose slowly from his chair. Don't you know? Dilworth shot at Wilderman that Bruno was the reputed head of the South Philly mob, end quote. Now, we'll get more into Bruno's rise in just a bit, but you can really see the picture starting to come into focus as to who Bruno was even at that point in the 1950s. And then in May of 1956, in what I believe to be the funniest charge he had on the books by this point, Bruno, age 46, was arrested and charged with being a common gambler, uh, a charge that would be, like others, dismissed due to lack of evidence. Now, honestly, arresting him and charging him with, with that at this point in his career, knowing full well that it would do nothing but slightly inconvenience him for a few days, can probably be characterized a little bit like harassment by this point from law enforcement. Uh, and it certainly gave me a chuckle in my research, uh, at least at first. However, as I did more digging, this arrest coincided with another effort by law enforcement in which they detained and photographed Bruno and several others around the time of the death of one of Bruno's mentors, Marco Reginelli. 
Again, both events seem like a preemptive strike by law enforcement, though I'm not sure how effective it really was in the end. In fact, I'm just going to go out on a limb and say it wasn't effective at all. Uh, again, this is just, it's getting a bit ahead of ourselves, but this arrest was essentially a warning to Bruno and others as the local police suspected that Bruno would be taking over for Reginelli, who passed away right around this time. Uh, the police were even actually calling him Reginelli's heir apparent, you know, in, in, in many public comments. In a story by the Philadelphia Inquirer that featured public statements from then police commissioner Thomas J. Gibbons, the paper would relate the following about the effort. Quote, police get photos of hoods linked to Reginelli mob. Up-to-date photographs of seven notorious hoodlums rolled off the new monolith machine at police headquarters yesterday, accompanied by orders from police commissioner Thomas J. Gibbons to post the pictures and records of the men in every police unit in the city. This is not an arrest order, Gibbons explained. I want the 2,500 new policemen to become familiar with these men and to closely watch their activities, and it won't hurt the veterans to refresh their memories either. Orders watch on mob. I have information that these men are a part of the Marco Reginelli mob, and I want their movements watched, Gibbons explained. He referred to the late alleged gang leader who was buried in Camden yesterday. Police discussion of possible successors to Reginelli have included Angelo Bruno, 46, of Snyder Avenue near 9th Street, whose picture and record were included in those sent to all police stations. Bruno has a record of eight arrests and two convictions on numbers racket charges. He was placed on probation each time and thus has never served jail time. His arrest record dates back to November 21, 1928 and includes charges of numbers writing, firearms act violation, disorderly conduct, and motor code violations. Just discharged again. On Sunday, Bruno was discharged again after being picked up as a common gambler. Gibbons named him the top man of the Sinister Seven. Among the first batch to be spotlighted were three Matteo brothers, Salvatore, 49, Frank, 47, and Michael, 50, all owners of long police records dating back to 1925. They have been charged with various crimes, including narcotics possession, suspicion of homicide, larceny, and numbers writing. The three other hoodlums listed were Peter Casella, 48, with a record dating to 1927 and only 60 days spent in prison in 10 arrests. Louis Campbell, 57, who was first arrested in 1917 for robbery and who spent two years in prison after 17 arrests. And Felix DiTullio, 49, of Camden, with a record of 14 arrests dating back to 1924. Gibbons said that the faces and records of the seven men would remain on all bulletin boards for 10 days. At the end of that period, another batch of photographs of known hoodlums will be sent out for posting, he added. End quote. Bruno would appear in the papers several more times in 1956 and 1957, most prominently due to his alleged efforts to muscle in on a newly chartered union, the local 410 of the Hotel and Restaurant Employees and Bartenders Union, uh, AF, uh, AFL-CIO. Uh, this union local had been set up to organize Philadelphia area luncheonette workers. And wiretaps would actually show that there were connections between Bruno, as well as local underworld characters named Samuel Cappy Hoffman, Samuel Shorty Feldman, as well as Jules Berg. Uh, now, in this incident, there was also a reference to a man named Charles Paulson, sent by none other 
than James Riddle Hoffa to run local 410. So Bruno was in with those guys and it went right to the highest level. Uh, the wiretaps contain references to Bruno, as well as references to breaking the neck of a particular individual named Ray Turchi, who was the business agent of the local waiters union and who was protesting the creation of local 410. Uh, again, there's much more to cover on Bruno's rise, and I'm putting the cart before the horse just a little bit. Uh, so let's quickly back up and talk about how Bruno made his way into Cosa Nostra. Now, it's very evident that he had major connections early on in his underworld career due to bootlegging uh, with LCN powerhouses such as Carlo Gambino and even a connection to Russell Buffalino, not to mention his familial, uh, his familial connections with Johnny uh, Keys Simone, as well as his uh, marriage-related connection to Michael Maggio. Uh, and I'd say there's no disputing that Bruno was around the life uh, probably from a very, very early age. Uh, and the interesting thing here is that there was really no evidence that I could find that Bruno had any major issues growing up, uh, meaning that he had a reasonably good education, his family wasn't impoverished, they weren't poor, uh, nor was he lacking a father figure. Uh, his father didn't actually pass away until 1940 when Bruno was 30 years old. So the choice to run the streets and get into the criminal lifestyle wasn't one of necessity like it was with some other gangsters of that era. It seemed to be more um, a personal choice to go in that direction. Uh, again, so I do think that that makes uh, Bruno unique. He was allured uh, by the pull of, pull of the street, not forced there because, because of, he was poor or didn't have anybody to guide him. Uh, as a result of his connections at an early age, there are some websites that will uh, that you'll find out there that claim Bruno was officially made in the 1930s. Uh, and while it's certainly possible, I'll just say that my research, which stems from multiple reports coming from several, not just one, several FBI informants at the time, indicated that he was not, in fact, made in the early 1930s or even in the 1940s. Uh, informants would indicate in several reports that Bruno was allegedly made into the Philadelphia family either around 1951 or 52, or more realistically, closer to 55 or 56. Now, here's why I think the 1950s making date is likely more accurate. Had Bruno been inducted in the early 1930s, it would have put him in his early 20s, which would have been very young. Uh, however, being made in the 1950s put Bruno in his early to mid 40s, which of course is a more seasoned and experienced age. Uh, now, the counter argument to this is that, of course, in the early 1930s, it wasn't nearly as abnormal for younger guys to get made uh, given the climate uh, in, in the changing of the times. Uh, I'm not saying it's impossible that Bruno was inducted earlier, but given the information I came across from multiple sources, my personal beliefs tend to lean towards the 1950s timeframe to be more accurate. To further support the notion, here's another reason why I believe uh, the report that Bruno wasn't made until the 1950s. In my research, I came across another FBI report stemming from three different informants in the, in the family, T1, T2, and T3, that laid out the induction ceremony of a man named Rocco Scafidi, who was allegedly made in 1950, but then uh, weirdly banished from the family for a period of 10 years, after which he was eventually reinstated. The report lists uh, other members present as Gaetano Scafidi, Joseph Scafidi, Antonio Polina, 
Antonio Maggio, who was also being made, Joe Ida, who was the boss at the time, Joseph Rugnetta, Marco Reginelli, Pat Massey, Jimmy Gioella, Anthony Perella, also uh, apparently being made, and Ignazio Denaro. Now, tradition has it, uh, if I'm to believe the, the quote-unquote rules, that if Bruno were a capo at this time, or even a really influential soldier, he'd more than likely would have been in this room. Uh, but again, that's just me speculating. Now, either way, uh, and all of that is neither here nor there, what's clear is that at some point he did get his button. Uh, and if we're to believe that it truly happened in the 1950s, it actually makes his rise even more astonishing, in my opinion. Uh, not only that, it makes some of what ultimately happened uh, to him make a little more sense as well. It, it kind of like it, the picture just fits a little bit better, uh, knowing that he was made in the 1950s. According to reports, as I stated, Michael Maggio, a very powerful mob figure in Philadelphia at the time, served as Bruno's mentor and would be the one to ultimately sponsor his protege for membership into the Philadelphia family. This is a connection that, like I said, went uh, at least as far back to the 1930s. It was a familial connection, or I'm sorry, a marriage-based connection related to his wife. Uh, and that connection would continue through Maggio's sons, even after the elder Maggio's death in 1959. After securing his button, Bruno would be placed in the crew of another influential family member, Marco Reginelli, where he would establish himself as a chief lieutenant for his captain, along with other notable members, including Pete Casella and Joe the Boss Rugnetta. It's worth noting that Reginelli would eventually become the family's underboss, so he was a fairly powerful guy in his own right, who at that time was running a really uh, extremely powerful crew. Uh, by this point, uh, now that we're into the mid-1950s, Bruno's status within the family and subsequent rise to power was well on its way. Uh, and I think it would even be fair to say it was picking up steam. Uh, what was clear to me in my research was that he had become a big-time earner for the family and that most of his publicly known crimes were nonviolent offenses, which can't often be said for most mafiosi. Uh, not only that, he didn't really do any jail uh, jail time. I guess that part is more, more common, uh, but he didn't get locked up uh, and he managed to stay out and earn. Uh, and I think that trend uh, of the nonviolent offenses over his career would tend to characterize his, his personality, generally speaking, as more of a racketeer than a gangster. But please, I'm going to say this again, please do not get it twisted. Uh, me saying uh, that it doesn't mean that he couldn't be a gangster when the situation called for it doesn't mean that he couldn't be a gangster when the situation called for it, right? Uh, all of those guys uh, in that life can be gangsters. Uh, and why do I say that? Now, I say that because I did come across several notes, not just one, several within FBI files that suggested Bruno did, in fact, personally take part in murders, which at that time in Cosa Nostra was a more, I would say, significant requirement or allegedly a more significant requirement than it would become uh, in later years in, mo in the modern era where murder is pretty much off the table. Uh, the note simply said, Quote, because Bruno is alleged to have committed gangland executions in the past, he should be considered armed and dangerous, end quote. So don't let, don't let his affable demeanor fool you. Uh, people seem to get the impression that Bruno never wanted to get his hands dirty, but let this be clear. 
Uh, Angelo Bruno, like many other mafiosi of his era, no matter how reserved, was capable of great personal violence and even murder. Uh, and I'm not trying to put this on, on him. I'm not trying to put murders on somebody. Uh, but the reports that I'm about to share will speak for themselves. And it would be those murderous sentiments, along with his relationships and accumulated power, that would put him in a position to ultimately rule Philadelphia after a series of events would lead to changes within the family's administration. Before we get any deeper into how Angelo Bruno rose in stature and was eventually able to ascend the top seat within the Philadelphia Cosa Nostra family, let's provide a brief history of the mob in Philly. In the early 1900s, Philadelphia had become a beacon for Italian immigration within the United States. Uh, the city had a rich history dating back to the American Revolution and essentially represented uh, the epitome of the um, American dream uh, and American freedom at the time. From the early 1880s to the mid-1920s, uh, that pretty much marked the peak of Italian mass immigration, not, uh, not just to Philadelphia, but to the entire country. Uh, at the end of the 19th century and early 20th century, South Philadelphia specifically saw a wave of Italian immigration from southern Italy. Uh, many came from the regions of Abruzzo, formerly Abruzzi, Campania, and Sicily. However, the American dream, uh, it was not. In fact, most Southern Italian immigrants were unskilled laborers, which meant backbreaking work. And on top of that, they were often confronted with discrimination, branded as violent and prone to crime in relation to the mafia, being shaken down by the black hand, uh, and you know many, many other types of really negative, uh, negative things uh, and experiences. Uh, similar to other cities, mafiosi and black can, like I just said, style extortion existed and was relatively commonplace around the turn of the century. Uh, the black can, though, uh, would eventually fizzle out and be replaced by larger, more well-organized groups of Italian-Americans, as well as other ethnicities, including Jews and Irish, uh, who by that point had formed themselves into legitimate street gangs uh, and legitimate organizations or <laughs> illegitimate organizations. Uh, there was even evidence from infamous mafia chronicler Nicola Gentile that he was inducted into a crime family in Philadelphia as early as 1907, though he didn't uh, report anything else about the, the city uh, in his writings. These groups, uh, these gangs, these organizations would eventually coalesce to form what would become uh, known as the organization, uh, the Philadelphia Cosa Nostra, the Mafia, uh, that kind of exists today, the very early uh, foundation of what exists today. The first leader and original namesake of the group was alleged to be a man named Salvatore Sabella. Uh, born in 1891 in the mafia stronghold of Castellamare del Golfo, Sicily, the birthplace of many other famous mafiosi, including Joe Bonanno, Stefano Magadino, Gaspari Malazzo, and of course Salvatore Maranzano, Sabella would allegedly commit his first murder at the age of 14, for which he would be sent to prison in Italy. 
However, after a few years, he was released, <laughs> a few years for murder, uh, he would eventually become involved with the Sicilian Mafia and eventually immigrated to the United States somewhere between 1912 and 1915. The Sabella family would settle in Williamsburg, Brooklyn, where Sabella would become a part of the mafia as a young man, Williamsburg being a, a big stronghold uh, of the, the local mafia in, in New York. Eventually, he would officially become part of the Salvatore D'Aquila organization, which would eventually, as you know, become the Gambino crime family. The leaders in the family saw something in young Sabella, and high-ranking family member Giuseppe Joe Trena took him under his wing and groomed Sabella for leadership, allegedly. Now, at a certain point, Sabella was uh, allegedly, again, I'm going to use allegedly a lot because this information is so old that it's, it's, it's not always clear and, and not that easy to find records of. Sabella was sent to Philadelphia to serve as the representante uh, for the mafia and the D'Aquila organization within Philly. He was tasked with building a mafia presence within the city, organizing the city's rackets and consolidating with other Italians, uh, and essentially uh, est establishing a beachhead for, for the New York mafia in Philadelphia. At this time, the underworld in Philadelphia was still what I would just call highly fragmented and somewhat competitive. Uh, not even somewhat competitive, a lot competitive, very similar to New York. Uh, so Sabella would go to work building the family, pushing out other gangs as best he could, uh, and getting the organization involved in bootlegging, extortion, loan sharking, and illegal gambling. Sabella would set up an olive oil. <laughs> this, is very, <laughs> this is very typical. I have to laugh at this. Uh, this is very Corleone style. Uh, and I promise not all Italians are in the olive oil business, but Sabella would allegedly set up an olive oil and cheese business as well as a soft drink business to serve as the, the, the fronts for his criminal operations. Now, it's around this time in the mid-1920s that Sabella allegedly first runs into Angelo Bruno, who he takes under his wing, uh, as well as a man named John Avina, who would be a key Sabella lieutenant, uh, John Avina more so than Bruno, uh, if the Bruno thing is even true. Now, Sabella would train and tutor both men in the ways of the life. And as I mentioned, uh, I believe that Bruno came up around this thing. Uh, and as mentioned, similar to other cities, the ascension of the Sabella organization wouldn't be completely smooth during the 1920s, and there would be some, some necessary violence in order to establish his organization at the top of Philadelphia's underworld. There was a, uh, there was a report in the Philadelphia Inquirer as early as May of 1923 indicating that Sabella and another man had been arrested in connection with the Black Hand uh, and I do think the newspaper and the media confused in those days Black Hand and Mafia, so they were almost used interchangeably. Uh, but he had been arrested, that being Sabella, uh, in a Black Black Hand uh, bombing that wrecked the lower floor of uh, M. Maggio uh, and Company Wholesale Grocery. Now, they were both notated at that time, not just as Black Handers, but to be members of the local gang. In 1925, Sabella was a prime suspect in the murder of rival mobster Leo Lanzetti. 
uh, Lanzetti was the third man killed in a five-day period in local bootlegging feuds along with a man named Joseph Bruno, 26, who refused to identify his killers despite laying mortally wounded with 14 gunshots. Uh, and I guess uh, not only was the dude tough, dude wasn't talking. <laughs> Then on May 30th, 1927, in a fairly significant incident, two rebellious members of his organization, Vincent Cocosa, 30, and Joseph Zangi, 19, were shot and killed in front of the Cafe Calabria on 824 South 8th Street. This is really where an issue starts for Sabella as Joseph's brother, Anthony Muskie Zangi, the alleged target of the hit and a pretty... Um, the guy with a pretty big reputation, uh, would name the names of his brother's killers in the immediate aftermath of the shooting. As a result, 11 alleged gunmen would be placed under arrest and seven of the men would be charged with double murder or double homicide. Uh, the men charged with the murder would be, uh, and I think you'll, you'll recognize a few of these names, uh, John Scapoletti, uh, or John Scapoliti, Salvatore Sabella, identified by Zangi as the actual slayer of the two men, John Bignoza Vina, uh, Paolo Domenico, Dominic Testa, Inigi Quitenta, and Joseph Ida. Uh, Dominic Polina, uh, Antonio Dominic Polina, would also eventually be pulled in after testimony from Zangi. So another big name. And although Sabella would be acquitted, according to a later crime report from the Pennsylvania Crime Commission, the investigation would allegedly reveal that he was an, an illegal alien who had entered the United States without proper documentation. Remember, I said that earlier. Mobsters uh, seem to have trouble with that and may have been fleeing an old uh, Sicilian murder charge uh, when he did enter the U.S., so at the end of 1927, Sabella would be deported back to his native Sicily, at which point he would allegedly put John Bignoza Vina in control as the family's acting boss. And in a lot of documentation, you will see Avina sometimes listed as the family's first boss, though Sabella would allegedly continue to, to steer the ship from afar. Uh, and then in the late 1920s uh, and early 1930s, as you know, pretty much all hell broke loose in New York City as the Castellamarese War erupted. Uh, now, while predominantly being centered and fought in New York City, the war also spilled into other cities, including places such as Detroit and Philadelphia, and allegiances in the, at this time were really put to the test. Either you were with Joe Masseria's group or you were on the side of Salvatore Maranzano. Primarily due uh, to sharing the same city of birth, Sabella allegedly took the side of Salvatore Maranzano and the Castellamarese clan. Now, rumor has it that in 1929, Sabella secretly returned to the United States along with some gunners, some Sicilian gunners, in order to fight for Maranzano. And when the fight was eventually won in 1931, he was alleged to have resumed control over the Philadelphia family and thus was the, the boss. However, as we know, Salvatore Maranzano was murdered on September 10th, 1931, and it's around this time that Sabella allegedly decided to step away and retire from the organization uh, and organized crime in general at the age of just 40. Now, it's unclear what led to his departure. Uh, I think it's clearly unclear, uh, but it was highly likely due to the fact that he was just too close to Maranzano. 
and as a result, he passed the mantle of boss permanently to a man named John, who we just mentioned, John Nezone, or Big Nose, Avina, and went on to live peacefully, actually dying of natural causes. He didn't die until 1962, allegedly. Now, John Nezone, Big Nose, Avina, uh, was born in Novara, Messina, Sicily in 1893 and arrived in the United States as a teenager around 1908. He is reported to have first tried his criminal wares as a black hander, but eventually he was taken into the Sabella organization, working closely as one of Salvatore Sabella's trusted lieutenants. When he was named official boss in 1931, he pushed the organization into partnerships with the city's Jewish mobs, as well as moving into other rackets, including narcotics, gambling, extortion, loan sharking, etc. Uh, however, this transition from Sabella to Avena would lead to another period of bloodshed. Uh, this would, you're going to find this is common in Philadelphia. When John Avina was uh, challenged in a feud, essentially, uh, by a, uh, a trio of brothers named the, the Lanzetti brothers, uh, again, men with big reputation in Philadelphia that didn't want to get along. Uh, and this would kick off a five year war for control over the Philadelphia crime family. The Lanzetti brothers, uh, a group, and I said a trio, but it's really five Italian brothers, were pretty infamous at the time in Philadelphia due to their penchant for violence. And without going too deep into this conflict, this is probably a topic for, for another episode. I probably could just do an entire episode just on this conflict alone. On August 17th, 1936, John Avina was betrayed and murdered by members of his own faction on orders from the Lanzetti brothers. Now, after, uh, after Avina's assassination, a man named Giuseppe Joe Bruno Dovey, uh, so he's called Joe Bruno, uh, but Giuseppe Dovey took over as the family's next boss. Joe Bruno Dovey uh, was a powerful family member born in 1889 in Messina, Sicily, and he had by that time established important connections with the five families uh, in New York as well as the Chicago outfit. Now, the interesting thing at this time uh, is that Joe Bruno, according, unless I met, uh, mixed him up with uh, somebody else of that name, because there was somebody else of that name, was probably about, and I, I, I don't believe I'm wrong, but I'm going to say he was probably about as hot as you could have been from a press perspective, uh, being referred to by the media in 1936 as a five times convicted as a murderer uh, and now the most wanted person in Pennsylvania. Uh, there were even reports that Joe Bruno's picture and description was to be circulated throughout the U.S. Uh, he is even alleged to have escaped from prison and was subsequently captured in 1937. So bit of an odd uh, ascension, and typically you would want someone who is more in the shadows, uh, but I digress, uh, and at that time, Joe Bruno was not, uh, but he was clearly, uh, clearly the person who took over for Avena. Now, once boss, Joe Bruno pushed to expand family operations outside of South Philadelphia to take over the greater Philadelphia area and even pushed into Atlantic City uh, and other areas of South Jersey. Uh, and this is, uh, you know, around this time, this is primarily why the Philadelphia family had those uh, connections into Atlantic City and New Jersey. Um, and this is this, this is why the Philadelphia family really, uh, really does have, uh, you know, big factions there. 
this is where the Jersey connection really seemed to become uh, significant for the family. And it would remain significant um, from pretty much that point on and get really big in the 70s and 80s. Now, by this point, the family's income would primarily be derived from, like I said, narcotics, expansion of illegal gambling and loan sharking, as well as uh, generalized extortion activities. Uh, it's during the 1930s and 1940s that Joe Bruno Dovey formed close bonds with both the Mangano and Luciano families out of New York. So the New York connection at this time also uh, becomes really, really important. Uh, Dovey allegedly ruled the family until October of 1946 when he was said to have died of natural causes. Uh, though I'm going to be honest, this is, again, one of the areas where I could not find uh, his death certificate. So could not find, find that record. Now, it's at this point uh, where the National Cosa Nostra Commission would really begin to ex exert its authority over Philadelphia in terms of naming who would be the next boss, or at least the, in the public-facing documentation that I would find, uh, it's at this point where they really name the next boss. Uh, and these maneuverings uh, that would eventually turn the tides of power and deceit uh, within the family uh, over the years, uh, they would be really, uh, I think, really important, important developments. Uh, so in late 1946, the commission appointed Dovey's consigliere, uh, Joe Ida, uh, as the new boss of the Philadelphia family. Joseph Ida was born in 1890 in Fumara, Calabria, Italy, and at some point came to the United States and settled in Philadelphia. He was known to have been a strong supporter of Joe Bruno's regime, which likely played uh, a pretty significant part in his ascension to boss after Joe Bruno passed away. Ida would run the family throughout the late 1940s and most of the 1950s. Under Ida's leadership, the family would continue to accrue more power and influence with the goal of pushing other mobs out of Philadelphia and South Jersey completely, though the Jewish mob would hang on for, for many years. Ida's tenure as boss would be heavily influenced by the New York families, particularly the Luciano family. During Ida's tenure, the family garnered more power, not just in Philly, uh, but also in Atlantic City, which is going to be very important, in South Jersey, uh, and the family would essentially be viewed as an extended faction of the Luciano family, which in the 1950s was run by the man known as the Prime Minister of the Underworld, Frank Costello, and of course the maniacal and always scheming eventual, eventual family namesake Vito Genovese. After the events of 1957, which was a very, very monumental year uh, that would include Vito Genovese engineering both the attempted assassination of Frank Costello, as well as the very successful assassination of Albert Anastasia with an assist from none other than Carlo Gambino, the landscape of Cosa Nostra in America would change forever. These events, uh, while centered in New York, would have a trickle-down effect on the Philadelphia family that would lead to a change, several changes, in the family's hierarchy. 
Weeks after the assassination of Anastasia, Genovese called the infamous meeting of the National Cosa Nostra in upstate New York at Joe Barbara's house in Appalachian. Uh, this meeting, as we know, was attended by around 100 prominent mobsters around the country and was meant to solidify his standing as the new godfather of the old Luciano family, which would be renamed the Genovese family, as well as to garner support for naming Carlo Gambino as Anastasia's successor. Of course, the meeting, as we know, famously was raided, and a total of 62 mob chieftains would be arrested and detained, including Philadelphia's boss, Joseph Ida, and Ida's underboss, Dominic Big Dom Oliveto. Ida and Oliveto would leverage their Fifth Amendment rights to avoid answering questions, with Ida only offering that he'd been invited to Barbara's house by Oliveto for a party to the authorities at the time of his capture, a story which he'd supposedly change. However, the government would keep the pressure on, forcing Ida again to answer questions in front of a New York grand jury in early 1958 to account for his presence at the meeting. And then in 1959, the government would continue to apply pressure. They weren't going to let this go to Ida and others by arresting 21 men who'd allegedly been at Appalachian and charging them with conspiracy to obstruct justice. As things would heat up, Ida would become a fugitive and allegedly would flee to Italy. Overall, 20 men would be found guilty of conspiracy, but Ida specifically was never actually apprehended. So as of mid-1959, Ida is essentially out uh, of the picture as it relates to Philadelphia's Cosa Nostra leadership. Uh, he's on the lam uh, and would ultimately never return to power within the family. Uh, now, I just want to stop here and point out that if these events never take place, Joseph Ida likely would have remained as boss of Philadelphia uh, until his death, abdication, imprisonment, or demotion, right? Uh, he probably doesn't leave the post. Uh, there were no indications up until this point that a change at the top was being considered. But his leaving would cause a chain of events that would take almost three decades to, to really fully un unwind. It is alleged that upon his departure, Ida would leave the family in control of his underboss, Dominic Big Dom Oliveto, for a time, uh, and this was a temporary position. At least one source would report that Joe the Boss Rugnetta would be appointed by the commission to take over for Oliveto, and he'd run things until everything was sorted out. Uh, when the commission did sort things out, they appeared to have made some pretty big changes. Allegedly, a meeting was called on September 26, 1959, and at that meeting, Oliveto, for whatever reason, was stripped of all authority. Rugnetta, again, for whatever reason, was demoted to underboss, and a man named Antonio, Mr. Mig, or Mr. Migo, uh, as he was referred to in FBI documentation and amongst his peers, uh, Antonio, Mr. Mig, Polina, was elected boss. Some reports say the position was official, while others say temporary or acting. Now, to close the book on Joseph Vida, from this point, he would essentially be retired from family business, though he wouldn't pass away until 1984. Antonio Polina, the new boss, would name Ignazio Denaro as his acting underboss. Now, here's an important side note. 
1959, and this is really important, the balance of power on the commission was changing. Uh, and Vito Genovese, by this point, was fighting a drug case that would eventually see him sent to prison for the rest of his life, meaning that his control, not just over New York, but also other cities, was starting to really wane at this point. The new powers on the National Commission were Carlo Gambino, head of the recently renamed Gambino family, and his close ally, Tommy Three Finger Brown Lucchese. Uh, and because New York had their hands in many pots, including Philly, this was an important development. Now, jumping back to Philadelphia to give a quick bio on Mr. Mig, Antonio Mr. Mig Polino was born in 1892 in Cacamo, Sicily, and immigrated to the United States as an adult and settled in Philadelphia, residing on South 11th Street and later on Snyder Avenue. As mentioned uh, earlier in the, in the episode, he was one of those arrested with Salvatore Sabello, John Avina, Joe Ida in the Zangi and Cocoso murders in the 1920s, uh, and also had several other run-ins with the law over the years. Now, shortly after Polina's ascension to the position of boss, which, as I said, was, was allegedly greenlit by the commission, it appears that he would initiate an event that would give the always scheming and Machiavellian uh, Gambino and Tommy Lucchese the opportunity to shift the balance of power on the commission in their favor. Another side note that I came across in research, I was able to find some information captured in a wiretap between Sam Giancana and Tony Accardo that indicated that New York, uh, while New York played a big part, Chicago might have also been a part of the Philadelphia decision uh, as well. So again, that just shows the, the power that Chicago had as well. So take that for what you will. Now, bringing the story back to our subject, again, I said, I told you we were going to bounce around a lot. So here it is. Uh, bringing the story back to our subject, Angelo Bruno. By this point, Bruno wasn't just an up-and-comer within the Philadelphia family. He was becoming a legit, uh, a legit superstar in his own right. Uh, and someone who had a tremendous amount of power, connections, and popularity within the family. Now, at some point in the 1950s, Bruno would take over as captain of the crew, formerly headed by Marco Reginelli, uh, at which point some reports would notate him beginning to rise in terms of his prominence. As I mentioned, Reginelli passed away in a Baltimore hospital on May 28, 1956, and at that time, police would make up a hoodlum list of 15 men associated with Reginelli, noting publicly that Angelo Bruno was his likely successor and heir apparent. I saw that in multiple newspapers, so it was, it was not a secret that Bruno was right at the top of the list to take over. Police Commissioner Thomas J. Gibbons would fear that a gang war was actually imminent in May of 1957 after Reginelli's passing, uh, and due to Bruno's ascension, uh, he, would he would believe that that fear was well-founded as Bruno and crew moved in to take over Reginelli's $30 million a year numbers racket. Yes, uh, you heard that right. They estimated that they were pulling in $30 million and they thought heads were going to roll uh, after Reginelli passed and Bruno and, and crew started moving in. Uh, however, it appears that there was actually a peaceful transfer or that Bruno was already in control uh, and no such war would, would erupt. Now, the list of crew members and close associates of Bruno would end up being some names that you are very, very sure to recognize. 
Alfred Freddy Ietzi. Now, in the 1950s, Ietzi was a soldier within Bruno's crew and was primarily working as a numbers banker out of South Philadelphia and running dice games in Camden and North Jersey. He co-owned the television bar on 8th and Washington Avenue with Felix Skinny Razor de Tullio. He would later go on to become a capo regime overseeing the crew of Nicky Scarfo. Uh, Peter Pete Casella. Uh, during the 1950s, Pete was running a large numbers racket in South Philadelphia, Camden, as well as North and South Jersey. Uh, he was also into the illicit alcohol business, as well as running dice games in New Jersey. Casella would eventually uh, achieve the rank of underboss to Bruno's successor, Philip Testa, and actually turned traitor and participated in the very successful assassination of Testa almost 30 years after the time period we're talking about. Uh, Another interesting character, Felix Skinny Razor, great nickname, DeTulio, uh, famously portrayed by one of my favorite actors, Bobby Cannavale, in The Irishman from 2019. Skinny Razor was one of Bruno's enforcers, uh, whose role was to keep all the numbers pickup men and riders in line. He was the muscle, uh, as well as to straighten out any trouble. DeTulio was also into narcotics trafficking as a wholesaler, and as I mentioned, co-owned the television bar with Alfred Freddy Ietzi. He would later famously own the Friendly Lounge and serve, uh, notably, as a mentor to future bosses, Nicodemo, little Nicky Scarfro, and future front boss, none other than Ralph Natale. Philip Chicken Man Testa, uh, the only one on this list that is actually in a Bruce Springsteen song uh, due to his assassination uh, 30 years or so after the fact. Uh, but by the late 1950s was uh, said to have been one of Bruno's key men in running his numbers operation. And my research did show that uh, they were uh, <laughs> uh, Testa was essentially Bruno's right hand by this point. He would be called in some FBI reports, Bruno's leg man, which I, I found funny. Leg man means, uh, I'm, I'm sure you can guess what leg man means. Uh, he would later become Bruno's underboss in 1970 and then step into the role of boss after Bruno uh, and would be famously assassinated by way of a nail bomb on his front porch. John, Johnny Keys, Simone. Uh, now, as we've mentioned, uh, Bruno and Johnny Keys go way back. Uh, Simone was made relatively famous when he rebelled against family boss Nicky Scarfo, at which point he was infamously whacked by Sammy the Bull Gravano. Uh, now, what really makes his story uh, infamous is that his final request to his killers, of course, was to let him take his shoes off. Now, based on my findings, Johnny Keys got his start as Angelo Bruno's bodyguard before going on to run the Atlas Extermination Company out of Trenton, New Jersey for Bruno. Over the years, it was alleged uh, that Keyes himself committed many, many homicides for the family. Nick Romano uh, was a pickup man for Casella who worked in the numbers bank at this time, around the 1950s. Though he was listed in this FBI report, I couldn't find actually a ton of information on Romano. John Amato, uh, formerly in the illicit alcohol business, Amato at this time was into the numbers business and had a, a record of 31 arrests dating back to 1931. And just for the record, based primarily on age, I don't believe that this is the same John Amato who was later the boss of the DeCavalcante family before being murdered after it was discovered that he was a homosexual. 
Louis Campbell, uh, alias George Williams, uh, was a professional gambler and former bodyguard of previous crew captain Marco Reginelli, but at this time was in charge of dice games in New Jersey, as well as being responsible for all uh, the Bruno numbers played in Camden, New Jersey. Frank Fort, alias Ferdinand Di Stefano. Uh, Fort was formerly an enforcer for previous crew captain Reginelli and transitioned into a role as pickup man for Bruno's numbers racket as well as running the numbers office. He also worked dice games in Jersey and had a criminal record dating all the way back to 1915, making him a relatively old timer. Uh, and he was another one that I wasn't able to find a ton of background information on. That said, there were actually a few reports that indicated Fort was part of Joe Rugnetta's crew, but it's clear that uh, Frank was one of Bruno's close, closer associates. Carl Pappy Ippolito, uh, frequently mentioned as an associate of Bruno, one who had invested in Cuban casinos, which we'll talk about in a minute. Johnny Longo, uh, by the late 1950s, was said to have been one of Bruno's key men in running his numbers operation. Dominic Calisi, uh, by the late 1950s, again, was said to have been one of Bruno's other key men in running his numbers operation and his office man. Now, here's a report from the FBI that will actually blow your mind a little bit, uh, moving past Bruno's crew. Dating to March 18, 1958, a confidential informant, T-10, stated the following. Quote, confidential informant T-10 advised S.A.'s John L. Adams and J. Robert Pierce that Angelo Bruno was a big man. He stated that Bruno, in his belief, had taken over the position formerly held by Marco Reginelli, but believed that Bruno won't last long because he came up too fast. He said that Tony Caponegro, a.k.a. Tony Bananas of Newark, New Jersey, or someone else might possibly kill Bruno or have him moved out of the way. End quote. Holy shit. <laughs> uh, this is a report from 1958, by the way. Uh, Caponegro was clearly, and I don't like to swear, but he was clearly a devious fuck even back then. Uh, and this is what we call in the business foreshadowing. Either way, Bruno's rising power and popularity at the time, uh, going all the way back to Mr. Mig, uh, was a major concern for Antonio, Mr. Mig, Polina, and maybe even some others within the family. Now, it's important to note here that Bruno and Polina were supposedly close friends who'd been in business with each other for over a decade by this point. They were familiar with each other and they were close. Uh, but clearly, Polina was likely looking to solidify his power and position as boss. Uh, and looking over his shoulder a little bit and having someone under you with so much power and so many connections when you're likely not as powerful yourself can make your position, especially in this world, tenuous at best. Uh, but we'll get to that in just a minute. Stepping back to Bruno. Now, the thing to understand about Angelo's rise in the Philly underworld is this. Despite his connections to the underworld in terms of friendships and his familial connections, Bruno was a relative unknown for longer than you'd expect for someone of his eventual stature. However, as you got into the late 1940s, uh, that would really start to change. And that's where really he becomes like, a, I would call him a, a meteor within the criminal circles around Philadelphia. According to reports, underworld sources would later state that Bruno was relatively unknown among the hoodlum element until bookmaker Frank Matteo introduced him to the numbers racket in 1949 or 1950. By 1963, 
uh, jumping forward 13 or 14 years, Bruno would be described as the biggest numbers man in Philadelphia with one of his operations employing over 200 riders. By this time, Bruno would be involved in the Italian lottery for which he was arrested several times. Bruno was said to be very active in handling the edge off in South Philadelphia, along with uh, Phil Testa and yes, even Antonio, Mr. Mig Polina, who is sometimes referred to as Dominic Polina. Uh, and of course, Bruno's success in the gambling business made him incredibly wealthy, as you might imagine, and served to bolster his loan sharking business, which also increased his wealth exponentially. Over time, reports would indicate that he preferred only to deal in large amounts with big-time racketeers who have more income. Bruno was said to have made some very, very large loans to members of the Jewish mob, who even by this point were still not 100% pushed out of the area, and in some cases were partnering uh, with the Philly guys, were very close to the Philly guys. Bruno was also taking pieces of crap games in Philadelphia as well as in New Jersey, and informants in late 1959 were reporting that for Bruno to be allowed to operate a crap game in southern New Jersey indicated that he was now more powerful than previously or had the sanction of the New Jersey racketeers in order to operate. In December of 1948, there's also an interesting article, so jumping back, uh, that appeared in the Philadelphia Inquirer, uh, where Bruno is referenced as a South Philadelphia sportsman uh, because he owned local boxer by the name of B.B. Wright. Uh, so he's just a sportsman. Uh, <laughs> Uh, so as many mobsters in those days were, he seems to have had at least a small piece in boxing. Now, if you're following the timeline, uh, and I applaud you if you can keep up, uh, much of uh, Bruno's success is also being bolstered by the fact uh, that around this time in the 1950s, this is allegedly when he got his stripes as a made guy within the family. Uh, and as far as I can tell, he likely would have been successful on his own due to his money-making talents, but having his button and the subsequent backing of the family gave him the juice he needed to take everything uh, not just one step further, but several steps further. In addition to running a strong crew and being an earner in his own right, Bruno was also the leader of, and thus had the ear of the old timers within the family, affectionately uh, or, or you know, out of fear, referred to as the Greaser Gang, uh, who were said to control South Philadelphia. These were older members of the family who'd had roots allegedly to the mafia in Sicily and Reggio Calabria, uh, who were allowed to operate here in the United States and who would be sought out for advice when needed. Uh, not only that, they were still earners and at the time, uh, don't get it twisted, they were still incredibly dangerous, making them a very important uh, ally, a very important group to have on your side. Not one to put all his eggs into a single basket, Angelo Bruno was also smart enough at the time to invest his illicit proceeds into legitimate businesses, which could then be used as fronts to launder his money. Uh, this is an approach strongly preached by, uh, by financial wizard uh, Meyer Lansky as a way to avoid prosecutions from law enforcement. It's a way to hide your money. Uh, Bruno would invest in several companies, uh, most famously probably the Atlas Sanitation and Extermination Company based in Trenton, New Jersey, which was uh, then given uh, to run to powerful mobster and his cousin, Johnny Keyes Simone. 
And of course, uh, there were no records kept of Bruno's alleged involvement in Atlas Sanitation, as it was apparently registered in the name of his son, Michael Bruno. He would also allegedly have a desk job at the Maggio Cheese Company, owned by his mentor, Michael Maggio, who had proposed Bruno for membership into the mob, as well as Maggio's brother, Mario. According to reports, Bruno and the Maggios were thick, uh, meaning thick as thieves, meaning very friendly. Uh, Bruno would also allegedly get into real estate, suggesting that uh, he owned, at this time in the mid-1950s, a building at 8th and Catherine, uh, which contained four apartments and one store. According to the real estate directory, the properties he owned, including his own home, were all listed as being owned by someone else. So he's a guy that, whether it be on purpose, well, it's definitely on purpose, but maybe even habitually, uh, just not putting things in his name. He also stated that he was in business with a man named Irving Carey, making and selling glass shower doors, a company called Glass Doors, Inc. <laughs> Pretty mundane uh, stuff if you ask me, but hey, a dollar's a dollar. Uh, he also had a piece of the Aluminum Products Sales Corporation based in Hialeah, Florida, in which he owned two shares. Carey owned 50 shares, and of course, Bruno's son, Michael, owned the other 48, right? So uh, in reality, a 50-50 split. Now, in a note that was more of, a, uh, of interest to me, it was alleged by the FBI that Bruno was also considering going into the banana business with a friend from Miami and was working to get his parole officer to give him permission to travel to South America to investigate this further. Now, I'm speculating here, uh, but my real guess here is that the banana business would have been a front for setting up a major narcotics operation. Uh, a lot of families got into this through through South America, of course, behind the scenes. It was never public. Of course, drugs were bad for public, but that's how a lot of them made a lot of their money. Uh, however, it was noted that Bruno eventually gave up on the South American venture uh, as he was spending all of his time, quote unquote, working for the Atlas Extermination Company. Additionally, ever the enterprising businessman, uh, Bruno and his soldier Pete Casella would operate a cigarette vending machine service as well as a bootlegging business. Side note, uh, I find it funny that there was still significant, significant money to be made in illicit alcohol, even at this point, 20 years after prohibition. This is 20 plus years after prohibition had, had ended. Uh, in fact, according to an FBI uh, criminal intelligence digest circulated to field offices in 1966, in the 1940s, non-taxed alcohol was one of Bruno's largest sources of income. And he was said to have made, uh, that being Bruno, at least $1 million just from a single still in one 12-month period. Uh, so at that time, $1 million, that's a lot of money. Just from one still, by the way. Also showing that he was getting his clutches into the local government uh, of Philadelphia, there were reports indicating that Bruno, very much like Tony Soprano uh, in The Sopranos, was making arrangements through Philadelphia City Councilman Paul D. Ortana to get into the trash hauling business. Now, a bit farther from home, FBI reports from an extremely reliable source, uh, as they said, also indicated that as of October 25th, 1958, Bruno had a piece 
maybe as much as $180,000 in investment of the San Suchi Casino and or possibly the Hotel Plaza Casino in Havana, Cuba. Uh, and that he was a partner in the casino with Trenton-based mobster and Philly family member Carl Papi Ippolito, which probably also means that he was regularly in touch with the likes of Santo Traficante and, of course, Meyer Lansky, who was leading the mob's interest in Cuba at the time. Of course, we all know that the situation in Cuba became extremely tenuous and un untenable uh, at best during the time uh, when, and that's right at the time where Fidel Castro's revolution uh, was taking place, and Castro would eventually kick the mob essentially out of Cuba. But it just goes to show that Bruno had connections at the highest levels, uh, even far outside the bounds of Philadelphia. And by the way, if you're looking for a good book, and I, uh, and, and I have one for you, I highly suggest you read Havana Nocturne, How the Mob Owned Cuba and Then Lost It to the Revolution by T.J. English. Uh, probably the best book on the mob and Cuba in existence. Now, in fact, uh, when Castro eventually toppled the regime of Fulgencio Batista, it was even speculated, however ludicrous, that it may kick off a gang war in Philadelphia as a result. Now, I find this ridiculous. Uh, reportedly, this was because Bruno was now back home eyeing local pursuits rather than making money in Cuba. Now, I'll let you be the judge of the veracity of that claim made by Assistant Philadelphia Police Commission, Commissioner David Malone, but it just helps to, to validate that Bruno did have interests in Cuba that were pretty significantly affected by the Cuban Revolution. So it's clear by this point, Angelo Bruno, he's got a piece of a lot of different things. What's also clear by this point in the late 1950s is that Bruno is an extremely powerful and well-respected capo regime with many strong supporters, not just in Philadelphia, but more importantly in New York and other areas of the country. Now this next part I think you're going to find interesting. As I touched on earlier, with guys from this era, the generally accepted rule was that you had to commit a murder for the family in order to get your button. This rule was said to have been more readily enforced in the early days with the effect of binding family members together in blood. Uh, however, there were certain guys like Angelo Bruno who were clearly more along the lines of racketeers than gangsters. Of all the people in the history of the mafia, I doubt that he would be very high on the list of members that you would think of as personally committing a murder. But then again, in order to get in, you're supposed to have killed someone, right? Uh, so by that logic, even if we can't prove it, that means he must have, correct? One FBI report uh, actually suggests that that line of thinking, the traditional line of you gotta kill somebody to get in, is, is misleading and, and potentially pretty inaccurate. Uh, quoting directly from that FBI report in which a very friendly informant answered various questions about the mafia. Quote, if a good fellow is used to make a hit, it does not necessarily follow that he will be made a member of the organization. On the other hand, it is not necessary at all for a member of the organization to have ever made a hit. It is necessary, however, that he be considered capable of handling such an assignment with efficiency and discretion." End quote. All that being said, it's clear that almost every member of the life is a person capable of great violence when necessary. And while most of what I saw relating to Bruno's early career were nonviolent offenses and more along the lines of racketeering style enterprises, I did find at least a few instances where he was suspected by police to have personally committed murders before he became the boss. 
So while Bruno was known to be diplomatic and not necessarily a bloodthirsty killer, if he wanted to make a move, he had the connections and the willingness to do so, sometimes personally. According to an FBI memo, testimony from an informant in the late 1950s, dubbed T3, stated the following under the subject of gangland executions related to Bruno. Quote, T3 said that during the past two years, Bruno was said to have been involved in at least one gangland-style murder. Redacted name, uh, according to the informant, is a well-known loan shark who resides in South Philadelphia. On January 31st, 1958, Captain David H. Roberts Homicide Squad, Philadelphia Police Department, said that the age and location do not agree, but the victim appears to be Alphonse Lenato, a.k.a. Snake Eyes. Captain Roberts said that Bruno and Testa were suspects in the investigation, but his department could locate no evidence or proof that they committed the murder. He said Lenato was murdered on September 26, 1957, and the body was discovered near a sewage works in southwest Philadelphia. End quote. And I can confirm through a report in the Philadelphia Inquirer dated September 27, 1957, that indeed Alphonse Lenato, a small-time thief who'd just been released from Eastern Penitentiary just 16 months earlier, was murdered. Uh, this report indicated that Lenato was found early on the morning of September 26, shot gangland style on a lonely roadway, Old Penrose Ferry Road in the southwest Philadelphia Meadows, roughly three quarters of a mile east of International Airport. Lenato had three bullet wounds in the head and back, and a medical examiner said he also had bruises on the neck, indicating that he may have been throttled. Police said clothing on the body was neatly arranged and that Lenato was lying on his back, his arms along both sides. The position of the body indicated that Lenato had been placed there uh, in a pool of blood about 15 feet from the body led authorities to believe that he was slain at that spot and then repositioned. In addition to the hit on Lenato, uh, I came across, and keep in mind, I wasn't looking for it, uh, another FBI report which contained the story of Bruno supposedly personally committing another murder, that of a man named Marshall Veneziali. This one actually seemed... Uh, I couldn't write it, right? This seems straight out of a Hollywood script. It's crazy. Quote, T-11 also advised that after the disappearance of one Marshall Veneziali, a former South Philadelphia bootlegger, he learned that Bruno left town by airplane. T-11 stated that he had heard that Bruno was at a meeting the night Veneziali disappeared, which was held at the South Philly Grill, which is owned by Joe Rugnetta. He stated that quite an argument took place there, supposedly with Bruno Veneziale, James Lefty Gotti, and that Bruno was supposed to have been seen leaving the grill holding a handkerchief over his eye. He stated that Veneziale had quite a temper, and it is possible that Veneziale hit Bruno, and this led to his murder. T-11 said the story is that James Lefty Gotti was supposed to have done the killing, but at the last minute he got cold feet and that Bruno did the job. This information is known to the Philadelphia Police Department. End quote. And again, uh, by cross-referencing this bit of information with old newspaper reports, I can indeed confirm that a man named Marshall Veneziali, age 39, was indeed found murdered and stuffed in a trunk. Uh, so this story wasn't just a Hollywood fabrication, it was indeed real. 
Veneziali's corpse was found on December 17, 1954, and he'd been missing since December 6, 1954. He had been shot through the head. In fact, 30 Philadelphia policemen would in actuality be charged with neglect of duty in connection with the disappearance of Veneziali, who was labeled as an installer of stills and said to be bucking a rival gang. Uh, this would indicate to me that the local authorities knew what was what, what was about to happen, and were maybe even compensated for looking the other way and maybe not going out of their way to find Veneziali. A later report, uh, four years later in 1958, would indicate that the police inspector at the time, John F. Driscoll, said that Veneziali was a lone wolf in the bootleg racket, which as we know was a big part of Bruno's income, and that the mob had ordered him killed when he refused to stop lone wolfing. Uh, so, hey, if they order you to kick up uh, and not be by yourself, it's, it's not time to mess around. It's time to kick up. Uh, and it was very much... Again, I hate swearing, but it was very much a fuck around and find out sort of situation. And unfortunately for Veneziali, he found out uh, the hard way. Now, whether Bruno personally murdered Alphonse Snake Eyes Lenato and or Marshall Veneziali or not, these incidents were just more things that would have bolstered his reputation within the family as not only a big earner, but someone who had the balls to get his hands, hands dirty if necessary, even after becoming a high-end soldier and capo. So to bring things back once more to Mr. Mig Polina, uh, Bruno, despite their, their past friendships, was likely not considered an ally, but rather a potential threat to Polina's leadership. And the story that's about to follow just goes to show that in the Mafia, there really are no true friends. Now, there is a commonly accepted version of events regarding Bruno's eventual ascension to boss of the family, and I'm going to lay that out first. This story really can be seen across many pieces of content online and has been really uh, repeated and parroted by many pundits over the years. Now, as the story goes, the acting boss, Antonio Mr. Mig Polina, would make the decision that Bruno had to go due to a disagreement between the two men. Bruno was called in front of the commission and admonished and subsequently ordered to reconcile with Polina, an order with which he attempted to comply. However, shortly thereafter, it has long been alleged that Polina gave his underboss, Ignacio Denaro, a contract to murder Bruno. Then, in a move very similar to what would occur with Joe Colombo in the 1960s, rather than take the contract, Denaro instead went to Bruno and let him know that Polina was planning to have him whacked. Uh, supposedly, it was at this time that Bruno went to his friends on the commission, Gambino and Lucchese, and it was agreed that Mr. Mig would step down as boss and the commission made Bruno the next family boss. Polina had clearly overstepped his authority as interim boss uh, or acting boss, whatever you believe, uh, which did not make the members of the commission happy at all. Uh, in addition to becoming the family boss, Angelo Bruno would become the first boss of Philadelphia to have an official seat on the commission. Uh, this move would swing the balance of power away from the Genovese family and more towards the Gambino and Lucchese alliance within the National Syndicate. Bruno would name Joe Rugnetta as his conciliary and would keep Ignazio Denaro as his underboss. It was at this point when Bruno would uh, allegedly earn his famous nickname, the Gentile Don, or you also hear him referred to as the Docile Don, allegedly by some uh, people in the media for the act of sparing Polina's life. Uh, and sometimes this has even been called the Pax Bruno. 
the commission would give Bruno a choice. He could have Mr. Mig murdered if he so desired, or he could allow him to live and either put him on the shelf or allow him to continue to operate within the family. Bruno would famously choose to show mercy and allowed Paulina not just to live, but to continue to operate in a retired status within Philadelphia. So more or less shelved. Uh, not that the relationship was ever the same again, but it is said that when Bruno's consigliere of many years, Joe Rugnetta, passed away in 1977, Mr. Mig, at that point in time, still felt secure enough to suggest himself as Rugnetta's replacement, to which Bruno was said to have politely declined. Now, here's where I'll do my best to separate fact for fiction. Uh, this story, while certainly legendary uh, and very cinematic, is not exactly what I was able to find in my research. Uh, and believe me, I dug and I dug and I dug and I reviewed old FBI documents for more hours than I care to admit. I reviewed newspapers. I reviewed anything I could get my hands on. And while it was clear to me that something definitely happened between Bruno and Polina that led to a changing of the guard, allegedly uh, a personal dispute, and maybe even orders to murder, my findings indicated that the switch was more politically motivated and related to Polina badmouthing Bruno. And here's where I'm going to thank uh, Mr. Jeff Canarsi of Mob Talk Radio, whose opinion I really respect tremendously, as he put me on to the idea that the politics of the change, in addition to helping Gambino and Lucchese gain the majority vote on the commission, could also have possibly been linked to their interest in gaining a major stake in Atlantic City, which was considered Philadelphia territory. Now, I'd considered that point, but hadn't yet really put all the pieces together until Jeff answered my question on his show. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, Atlantic City became a huge part of what the Philadelphia family did once the casinos got up and running in the late 1970s, but it, it really just shows the foresight. Atlantic City, by at that point, wasn't what it became, so it just shows the foresight of Gambino and Lucchese and their pals uh, that they really you know, made this move early on, seeing very far down the line how it might pay off. Now, again, I'll emphasize, I was not uh, able, outside of the Atlantic City story, I was not able to locate a single, not one, resource that confirmed that Polina had ever personally ordered a hit on Bruno. So, not saying it didn't happen, but it's just one of those classic cases where I expect to find one thing uh, when I do my research, but instead find another. Like I said, I'm not saying it's not true, but it's not something where I found direct evidence, only innuendos in various reports and stories. Very, very much innuendos all over the place. Instead, what I found were stories after the fact and transcribed conversations that almost definitely mentioned things like Polina, quote unquote, doing some evil to Bruno, being, quote unquote, brokenhearted with Polina, but never quite rising to the level of planning a murder, though it's still possible and even probably likely it's, it's very plausible that that's what happened. Uh, in short, uh, like I said, I found no smoking gun. Uh, but here was the best summation of the events surrounding all the documents I was able to read. This summation comes from a 1966 FBI Criminal Intelligence Digest that was submitted uh, to field offices around the country. Quote, One source reported that immediately after Ida left, his underboss, Dominic Olivetto, took over. 
If so, the arrangement was a temporary one for loan shark Joseph Rugnetta was soon named boss and ruled until a family meeting could be called on September 26, 1959, at which time Oliveto was stripped of all authority, Rugnetta was demoted to underboss, and another loan shark, Antonio, Mr. Migo, Polina, was elected boss. Paulina has since claimed that he had the backing of Ida for his promotion, but the bickering within the family eventually became so great that the commission refused to confirm his appointment. Instead, Bruno, whom Paulina had raised to the rank of Capo Regima, or captain, and around whom most of the bickering seemed to have settled, was summoned to New York City in order to effect a reconciliation. The attempt was a failure, however, because Polina had become too distrustful of his young subordinate and had also launched a smear campaign against him, among other members of the family. As tension mounted and the two opponents expressed private fears of being murdered by the other, an argumenta or arguing body was convened at Wildwood, New Jersey by the commission. Although one source advises that the hostility stemmed from a fit of jealousy and a question of personal popularity, whereas another maintains that Bruno was withholding money he had collected, Polina made the mistake of trying to deny that a dispute existed at all. Faced with this impasse, Ignazio Inyats Dinaro stepped forward to contradict Polina and absolve Bruno of all blame. When the commission settled the dispute by appointing Bruno boss, Angelo quickly reciprocated and named Dinaro his underboss. No informant has ever pinpointed the precise date of the Wildwood affair, but by November 1960, Bruno was overheard calling himself the Representante Ufficiali, official representative of the commission in the Philadelphia area, and telling Polina that the latter should consider himself fortunate to have been relieved of his responsibilities. As might be guessed from Bruno's remarks, his main conflicts since his promotion have been internal rather than external. To begin with, Angelo is Sicilian, and though he boasts that he does not judge a man by the province of his birth, a number of sources have advised that the Calabrians have been conspiring for years to overthrow the Sigis in the Philadelphia hierarchy and oust Bruno from power. Another major cause of dissension at first was Angelo's youth and his relatively brief membership in La Cosa Nostra at the time of his election to the commission. When resentment began to reach a dangerous stage the early part of 1962, Bruno called a meeting of the older members of the organization and warned them that if they continued to resist his administration, then they had better not come to him for help later in a time of need. The biggest difficulty, however, is the allegation that Bruno is a tightwad, and that having made his own fortune, he no longer cares about the welfare of those under him. Partly because of this, and partly because of Angelo's tendency to use his friend Phil Testa as a confidant and an informal aide-de-camp, he has completely alienated his underboss, the man who made his rise to power possible, by denouncing Polina in 1960. End quote. Now, I'm not saying that the well-known story about the Polina murder plot isn't true. In fact, like I said before, it very well could be true, as I just couldn't find anything to suggest what was actually said in the Wildwood incident, uh, which very well could have been threats or could have been actual orders to murder. Either way, it wasn't good, and it was so bad that the commission stepped in. 
Now, what I am saying uh, is that I simply couldn't find the documentation to prove that the actual plot existed. And I did find documentation to indicate things happened behind the scenes uh, that may have been more along the lines of political maneuvering. And the Polina Bruno issue could have been used quite simply as an excuse to make a change, which, as we know, benefited the Gambinos greatly over the course of the next 20 to 30 years. Uh, that said, I do believe the story that got Bruno his reputation as the Gentle Don to be true, and there were some records indicating that he gave his word to Polina that no harm would come to him. Take that for what it's worth, I guess, in the Mafia. Either way, I'll let you decide uh, in the end what you choose to believe. To reinforce the power of the connections that Bruno had in his new position, a few years after becoming boss of Philadelphia, an informant dubbed T5, they had a, at least five informants by this time, would relay the following story. Now, apparently in May of 1962, uh, and again, Angelo Bruno's underboss Ignazio Denaro, ignoring the established chain of command as well as commission rules, went to the commission in New York behind Bruno's back to have a sit-down where he'd lodge a complaint against his boss and allegedly attempt to have him removed. Denaro would speak to Carlo Gambino and another person named Joe, which could have either been Joe Bonanno, Joe Colombo, or Joe Magliocco about cutting himself in on a card game. Imagine, uh, imagine going to the commission over, over that, over a freaking card game. Uh, Denaro was advised to return to Philadelphia, sit down with Bruno, and resolve their differences. Uh, and as you would expect, this sort of backdooring uh, of his authority would greatly upset Bruno. Months after the dispute between Bruno and Denaro, it's alleged that Bruno related the following to informant T5. Quote, Bruno stated that as soon as Denaro went to New York, he, Bruno, was contacted and advised. Bruno stated that Denaro was the sorriest man that ever did what he did, that is, going to the commission. Bruno stated that he, Denaro, was told by Carlo Gambino... I want you to know Angelo is with me even if he is not here. He is sitting right there just the same, just like we represent Angelo. This statement was interpreted by informant to mean that Gambino respects Bruno as an equal because Bruno too is a member of the commission. End quote. Now that's power, and that's the value of such a friendship in this life, one that would be the linchpin of Bruno's authority in the underworld for years to come. The two men through their friendship would use each other over the years to propel themselves forward. Gambino, uh, and again, he, he had a lot of power, right? So, so this is just, in my opinion, icing on the cake, but Gambino would leverage his friendship with Bruno to essentially control the majority on the, on the commission through Philadelphia's proxy vote, which, due to the friendship, naturally went to the Gambinos whenever there was an issue. Bruno, on the other hand, and he, I think, was the one that benefited more, would have the backing of Gambino to solidify his own power and authority in Philadelphia and parts of New Jersey, and this would ultimately keep him protected. However, as you may know already, this relationship would ultimately also provide the basis for Bruno's downfall, but we'll get to that in part two. And to illustrate Bruno's thinking as it regarded Philadelphia's relationship with the commission, he would allegedly relate the following in February 1962 to an informant. Quote, we respect the commission, do you understand? And we couldn't do nothing without New York. End quote. 
If you ever read the book Mafia Prince Inside America's Most Violent Crime Family and the Bloody Fall of La Cosa Nostra by Scott Bernstein and Philip Leonetti, which I, I highly recommend, I really like that book, uh, you'll know that the family's sentiments and relationship with New York would continue to be important in settling family disputes and making leadership changes all the way into the 1990s. So in Philadelphia in the late 1950s and the early 1960s, a new and all things considered harmonious era in the underworld would begin. It's also worth noting that the Philadelphia papers did not note the shift in the leadership of the family uh, and Philadelphia, as much as anywhere else, the local media is all over the mafia, surprisingly for such a secret organization. Uh, but the Philadelphia Papers wouldn't start referring to Bruno as Philadelphia's top kingpin uh, until at least 1961, and he wouldn't really re be referred to by the media as the head or the boss of the family until 1963, according to what I was able to dig up. Uh, so Bruno was able to remain fairly under the radar in terms of the public about his new status in the underworld at the time. And despite his faults, I think many would probably admit in hindsight that these years would constitute a golden age for the Philadelphia mob. Sure, uh, there would have to be killings from time to time, and sure, there were periods where the heat from the government would probably seem like murder, but by and large, things were as peaceful as one can reasonably ask for in the underworld. Of course, hindsight is always 2020, but in the bloody time period that would follow Bruno's ultimate demise, I'm sure many probably yearned for the good old days under Angelo Bruno when things were calm and the organization was far more measured in its approach. But that's a story for another day. Okay, <laughs> that's it for, for this episode. Again, it was another beast, uh, but I sincerely hope that you maybe learned something that you didn't know before. Uh, if not, I guess you can let me have it in the comments. Uh, I know I found out plenty of new information, at least to me, uh, as I was going through the, the pretty intense research process uh, on Bruno. Coming up next, as promised, I am going to do an episode on the Cerrito family to be followed by part two of Angelo Bruno, where I cover his reign, uh, his fall, and of course his ultimate assassination, which is one of the most infamous and enduring events in the history of Cosa Nostra in this country. After those episodes, I'm considering working on either the Castella Marese War, digging into some really fun anecdotal wiretap conversations I came across during the 1960s related to the increased scrutiny coming from the Kennedy administration. There's some actually pretty funny stuff in there. Of course, I'm also looking to do more interviews, but uh, not just looking for any interview. I'm specifically looking for people who have stories of running up against the mobbies or either as a result of being in that life, uh, but more likely from people that have really no affiliation with the life whatsoever. People like myself that just so happen to be in an area where, well, you run up against it. Uh, like I said in last episode, it won't be your typical talking heads. Uh, so if you think you're one of those people, email me at membersonlypodcastshow at gmail.com and we'll be in touch and we'll see if it's, uh, if it's something that, that I'm interested in. 
Also, before you go, please don't forget to, to subscribe so that you can continue to enjoy my content as it's released. And if you have any thoughts, please leave them in the comments on YouTube or write us a review on Apple. Lastly, feel free to check out our website at www.membersonlypodcast.com or follow me on Twitter or Facebook. Not quite as active there. Uh, go to the website, uh, but you can mostly interact with me through, through YouTube. Uh, I'm still a relatively small channel, and to be honest, I could use all the help I can get to grow, uh, and I appreciate it in advance. Uh, and as I say after every episode, until next time, grazie. Thank you for listening to the Members Only Podcast. If you're watching on YouTube, please hit like and subscribe to help the channel grow. You can also listen anywhere you get your podcasts. Until next time, don't forget to keep your mouth shut. <laughs>